Remember Monica and Rachel's apartment on Friends? It was a two-bedroom, 1,100-square-foot flat in the West Village of Manhattan. What do you imagine the rent on something like that would be? The show writers claimed that Monica had inherited the rent-controlled apartment from her grandmother, so she only paid $200 per month for it. But according to a bit of legwork done by interior design studio Hovia, that apartment would go for about $6,500 per month on the open market today. $6,500. Even in the mid-90s, the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in New York City was almost $2,500. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. So over the years of working in financial services, I came to have this almost anger that built up in me. That's Manisha Takor, author of the new book, Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. When I would look at media images, whether they're in TV shows or movies or magazines or more recently Instagram and so forth that portrayed lifestyles that were completely unrealistic. I think that even as a 14 or 15 year old watching Friends, I knew on some level that Monica and Rachel's apartment was not indicative of what New York City apartments were actually like, especially not for two women in their 20s with questionable incomes. Friends was a fantasy as much as it was a sitcom. But even if I knew it was a fantasy, the Friends New York City lifestyle still informed my idea of what the trappings of young adulthood were supposed to be. Manisha has another example. Just take any legal, police, medical drama, and I'm going to pick on suits. Okay. What are you looking for? In the show Suits, it's a legal drama, and there's an assistant to one of the main characters named Donna. And the show takes place in ostensibly New York or another East Coast humid city. And yet she never has frizz in her hair. So Donna has clearly come to the office each morning with a fresh blowout. And then she's exquisitely dressed. We'll get to the clothes in just a bit, but let's talk about that hair. A blowout at Drybar costs $45 to $70. They charge an extra $20 if you have extensions. Now, I've never watched Suits, but judging by my Google image searching, I'd venture to say that Donna's voluminous mid-length hair is almost certainly helped out by some extensions. Let's say her blowout is $60 plus the $20 upcharge for extensions. That's $80. Now, a professional blowout lasts three to five days. So on the low side, that's almost $500 per month just on blowouts. And how about a cut in color? I spend about $200, including tip, every couple of months for my cut and color. But in New York City, I could easily spend a double on that. It's 
one of the perks of living in a small town. Donna's hair is a rich copper red, which hypothetically could be her natural color, but the odds that she's getting it punched up are incredibly high. So let's say that's another $300 every other month. That's nearly $8,000 per year on her hair. But it's not just that she has a very elegant personal style. You can see that the fabrics and the quality of the clothes she has on, the shoes she's wearing, the handbag she's wearing are stellar. Again, judging by my Google image searching, Donna's style reminds me of a dress I once had and loved from the brand Vince. After a quick check on the Nordstrom website, I spot that an office-appropriate dress from Vince will set you back about $400. A suit would set you back more like $800. And then you look at her social life and she's going out and having drinks with friends. Well, you know, in Manhattan, there's no thing such as a drink lower than 15 bucks before a tip. Get your tux on. We got a situation. Even if Donna is splitting the rent four ways, only taking the subway to get around the city, and being frugal about everything else in her life, she's still looking at a considerable budget line for discretionary spending. And so I thought, what if I added up what it actually would cost to groom and live like that, and then compare it to the average salary for these positions. Okay, Hotshot. Fire up this laptop. Thanks to the Suits Wiki, I know that Donna's title was legal secretary, though later she was promoted to COO. And thanks to salary.com, I can tell you that the median salary for a legal secretary in New York City is about $63,000, with the top 10% making north of $80,000. And in, in this case, and pretty much any other case that I've done this exercise in, you need to earn 30 to 50% more than the positions we are being shown. Yeah, that math seems about right. It might even be on the conservative side. Donna, about the other night, I know you said you wanted more, but before you say anything... I want to be a partner. Partner? Yes, I figured out what I want, and I want to be a partner at this firm. Donna, I don't mean to insult you, but... You're not even a lawyer. Good, because my being a partner isn't about the law. It's about keeping this firm running, which I've been doing for as long as I can remember. I know that. So why does this matter? The answer is mimetic desire. The mimetic theory of desire first proposed by René Girard in 1961, argues that what we want is produced socially rather than intrinsically. Basic needs like water, food, warmth, those are intrinsic, even innate. We'll seek those out regardless of the social environment around us. But our desire for anything beyond those basic needs is heavily influenced by what the people around us desire. What's something you want right now? Do you know where that desire comes from? 
I've shared before that I'm considering applying to PhD programs in the fall, and I really need to get my act together. The thing is, I want to go back to school and get an advanced degree. This is certainly not a basic need. It's, it's not even a career need. Why do I want to do this? On one level, I just really want to be back in that kind of environment, and I'd like to finish what I didn't quite start. But on another level, let's be real, the writers and thinkers who are models of possibility for me almost all have advanced degrees. I want to close the gap between their credentials and my credentials. I want what they have. Luke Burgess, a writer and entrepreneur, wrote about Gerard's theory of mimetic desire in his book, Wanting. Uh, it's how we learn languages. It's how we learn cultural norms. Uh, it's how we learn all kinds of things, probably even how to love and care for other people. Buried in a deeper layer of our psychology, he explains, is the person or thing that causes us to want something in the first place. Desire requires models, people who endow things with value for us merely because they want the things. A TV show character like Donna is a model. The way she styles her hair, the clothes she wears, the meetups with friends for a drink, each of those details represents something that Donna desired and attained. As a result, we're more likely to desire and try to attain them as well. Hi, and I'm not your secretary anymore. I'm COO of this firm, so instead of criticizing me for working late, why don't you go see what he wants? Burgess explains that the influence a TV show character or celebrity has over our desire is mediated by the social distance we have from them. Sure, I can look at an outfit that, say, Tina Fey wears in an interview and recognize that I would love to wear something like that. But I'm less likely to actually go to a store and try to find it than if I saw a friend wearing a similar outfit. Tina Fey lives in, as Burgess puts it, a different universe of desire. She has access to things that I won't ever have access to by virtue of her celebrity, wealth, and social network. When I see my friend wearing an outfit, though, I imagine that it's within my reach. I might ask her where she got it or do some internet sleuthing to figure it out. In other words, the influence of a mimetic model is dependent on social context. There are plenty of factors that complicate influence and social context today, though. First, there's the sheer amount of stuff we have access to. Our economy runs on cheap consumer goods and lots of them. In the past, one wealthy person would have roughly the same kind of stuff as another wealthy person. One middle-class person would have roughly the same stuff as another middle-class person. One working-class person would have roughly the same stuff as another working-class person, and so on. But today, Working class, middle class, and wealthy people can often be found buying similar goods, if not at the same price point, then at least with imitation as an explicit intent. Second, our mimetic models are all out of whack. The line between a celebrity and a friend is 
blurry. Celebrities show up on social media looking like friends, and friends show up looking like celebrities. It can seem like we're all trying to be relatable and authentic, while also positioning ourselves as people to imitate. And the third factor complicating what influences us today is our fractured media landscape. The monoculture is gone, and with it are de facto class agreements about trends, goals, and lifestyle. Your idea of what wealthy looks like might be completely different from mine. Your idea of what middle class looks like might be completely different from mine. Add to that the social element of media, and our unconscious imitation of others gets really out of control. In her book, Manisha cites a 2018 study that found that almost 90% of millennials say social media has caused them to compare their own wealth and lifestyle to that of their peers. And while the percentage was lower among Gen Xers and baby boomers, it was still a majority for both generations. So we might be able to buy stuff similar to what celebrities and other rich people buy. We're definitely exposed to a wider variety of mimetic models without the usual context. And trend-wise, our culture is more diverse than ever. That sounds like a recipe for getting our wires crossed. When we look at Rachel and Monica's apartment, or Donna's perfect hair and designer clothes, or even a seemingly middle-class family taking an extravagant vacation on Instagram, we lack important financial context. We lack the kind of distance we normally have from models who represent that different universe of desire. The mimetic playing field is being leveled and probably not in a productive way. So we are bombarded with these false financial images. And then because we live in a society where you meet somebody and within the first three questions, it's what do you do? We use work as a way to value people. And then we look at how they're presenting themselves. And we use that to make an assessment about how, quote, successful they are at work. And you stir all of that together and you get a counterfeit financial culture. Counterfeit financial culture. That's a pretty evocative phrase. I think the counterfeit isn't so much like a counterfeit $50 bill or a counterfeit Rolex. It's the effort and money we put into trying to create our own counterfeit lives. We're counterfeiting a presentation of wealth or status through the clothes we wear, the handbags we carry, the cars we drive, and even the way our hair is styled. What we don't realize, though, is that our expensive imitation isn't even based on reality. Now, imitation is part of the human experience. Burgess writes, quote, humans learn through imitation to want the same things other people want, just as they learn how to speak the same language and play by the same cultural rules. Imitation plays a far more pervasive role in our society than anyone had ever openly acknowledged. Okay, now quick aside. 
as I was Googling around to remember what the name of one of those ungodly expensive handbags was, I discovered that there's a brand of leather goods, including handbags, called Status Anxiety. And while Status Anxiety's goods are more mid-range than high-end, they're not cheap. A shoulder bag is going to set you back about $300. And yes, that bag has the words Status Anxiety embossed on the front of the bag in gold lettering. Capitalism is wild. For the record, the status handbag I was trying to remember is the Hermes Birkin bag, which will set you back at least $8,500. Counterfeit financial culture, as Manisha describes it, not only creates false desire, it often robs us, literally, of what we do want and even what we actually need. Okay, so we're working to not just meet our basic needs in a Maslow hierarchy of needs standpoint. We are working because the messages we are getting are telling us that our Maslow's hierarchy of the needs doesn't stop at food, shelter, basic transportation. It includes having a gorgeous home and taking lovely vacations and having all the right gadgets in your kitchen. And so what happens is we start to feel like we have to keep earning more money because the measure of success is defined by having a collection of physical things or fancy experiences that you can brag to your friends about so that they think you're more successful. The system works as designed. The growth of consumer capitalism is predicated on our desire for more. A company's bottom line is predicated on how much more work they can get out of us without having to pay us more. We work to buy more and then have to work even more to buy even more. If you're using an Excel spreadsheet, you can get something called circular loops. And that's what this is. Like, you just can't get yourself out of it. At this point, it's not only stuff. It's perhaps not even stuff at all. Philosopher Byung-Chul Han put it this way. All in all, today we do not consume things so much as emotions. The former cannot be consumed without end, but the latter can. In fact, capitalism is built on an assumption of scarcity, whether that scarcity is real or invented. And today, at least in the global north, most scarcity is indeed invented. This is true of both the scarcity that keeps a much too large segment of the population in poverty, it's invented as a political tool to grab and hold power, and it's true of the scarcity that fuels our individual feelings of not enoughness. That kind of scarcity is invented by marketing messages, individualism, and alienation. Scarcity, like mimetic desire, lives in the space between what we have and what others have, between what we thought we wanted and what our models convince us we want instead. As Han points out, the scarcity that we either feel or 
fear today is most often emotional. It might be signified by a status handbag, swanky apartment, or the perfect blowout, but beneath those commodities is an emotional chasm that can't ever be filled by their consumption. And what's more, the perception of scarcity has a real effect on our personal finances. Most people struggle with understanding what is reasonable spending within the context of what they are earning. And so it's a slippery slope. It's so easy to then get in debt. Then you need to work even more. And so this circular loop between workism, workaholism, worshiping at the altar of work has an awful lot to do with what we're doing with the money that we are receiving in exchange for the time that we're spending at work. And an awful lot of that stuff, A, is not making us happy because then we have to take care of it and insure it and worry about it breaking and getting it fixed when it breaks. And then there's always another newer generation, so you have to upgrade. You just can't get yourself out of it. So the linkage between consumption and workism is a vital one. I agree. It's critical to understand the linkage between consumption and work. And it's critical to acknowledge the ways both our consumption and our work habits are influenced by the models we encounter every day, whether online, in person, or in the media. Desire, writes Burgess, like gravity, does not reside autonomously in any one thing or person. It lives in the space between them. If we want to make more intentional choices about how we work and what we buy, it's that space between that we need to explore. I'll give the last word to Manisha. She writes, it's wonderful to feel inspired to strive for more, to earn more, to be the best version of yourself. But it's crucial that we look beyond the curtain of counterfeit financial culture and ask whether the wealth narratives we are watching play out on TV, in movies, in social media, and among our peers actually reflect financial reality. Changing your relationship to work is hard. There is a ton of social conditioning, economic friction, and even relationship challenges to wade through. Even if you really want to change, you can easily get caught up in old patterns. And no one knows this better than the coaches, consultants, managers, and guides of all kinds who work with people who, well, work. If you're one of those guides, you already have a bunch of tools for helping people know what their values are and what really matters to them. You have tools for helping people identify their next steps. But where you might feel a bit uneasy is helping your clients or team members identify the external influences that keep them stuck or stressed. That's why I'm leading a 12-week certificate program called Work in Practice. You'll learn how to spot the social, political, and economic systems that make change hard. Because until we can unravel those systems and question our most basic assumptions about work, 
we won't be able to break the cycle and imagine a more sustainable and nourishing way forward. Work in Practice starts September 20th. Learn more about the program and view the program syllabus at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutanaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.